Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi. This is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. We modern folk like to think we invented confusion, but human beings have always been confused. We hear and see whatever we want, ignoring everything only to marvel at a phantom we mistake for our reflection. In Matthew chapter 27, this behavior exposes the character's folly in the story. The bystanders are listening for something other than the content of what is preached from the cross. Like us, they find what they are listening for and miss everything. You might say it's a Matthean critique of pre-modern postmodernism. Or maybe they're just confused. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 27, verses 47 to 50. You're listening to the Bible as literature. Hi. This is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 418 of the Bible as Literature podcast. We've been reading the Gospel of Matthew for over a year, and I still haven't come across the word orthodox. Yet somehow this word keeps cropping up in every other conversation I have with people. I just want to point this out publicly. We've been talking a lot about Father Paul's discussion of the mistranslation of the word abad in Genesis. It is translated as till the ground in the King James Version of the Bible. For me, it's an interesting case to discuss. I critique often on the podcast postmodernism, and here you have a translation of the Bible that is lauded as a major work, something that's part of the heritage of classical literature in the West. You have a translation of the Bible that is part and parcel with the establishment of the American colonies. So this translation of the Bible is, in a way, part of the foundation of American Christianity, whatever that is. And you have this question of the word till. So a colonial king with colonial designs on a foreign land who sent people here to take from the land and to use the land and to exploit the land for his own purposes, commissioned 
the translation of a text in which God, in the original text, when he expelled Adam and Eve from his oasis, punished them by saying that they were to be the slaves of their mother. They were to serve their mother. They were to serve the ground. Not till it, not farm it, but be the slaves of the ground. And of course, this slavery parallels the slavery to God in the wilderness in Exodus. It parallels the slavery to Christ in the Roman household in the New Testament. We could go on and on with the function of slavery in the Bible. But with respect to the critique of postmodernism, there is the story the authors are telling, which uses a specific terminology for the purpose the authors intended. Abad, Abed, in Arabic, Abd, the slave of, the Adama, and the story of King James, which is a group of colonial entrepreneurs coming, as you said recently, Richard, to a virgin land in order to rape it, to exploit it, to till it, to take from it. I want to take a moment to talk about this because this is what we do when we insert ourselves and our perspective, when we impose it instead of submitting to what the author is saying. This is what we do. It's not simply a question of finding meaning creatively, which is a sin, because the only one who can bara in Scripture is God. (laughs) You're not allowed to be creative in Scripture. There's only one creator. It's that when we are creative, we invariably create something that causes harm and that is destructive and that serves our purposes, which work against God's purpose. People talk about finding their church in the pages of the New Testament. How can you find your church in the New Testament? How can you possibly find orthodoxy in the New Testament? It's empirically impossible. It's not written. It's historically inaccurate. Why do we want to find orthodoxy in the New Testament? For the same reason that King James and his ministers and his academics and his scholars, like Humpty Dumpty on the wall, wanted to find colonial farming and industry in Genesis because we want to make the text in the image of our projected story to serve our interests. That's why we don't use the word orthodox unless we are talking specifically about the Orthodox Church, which is how the word is used. We don't constantly say Orthodox this, Orthodox that, Orthodox, Orthodox, Orthodox. Because when you talk this way, you are reading yourself into everything against God's purpose. If you try to find your church in the pages of the New Testament, if you're being honest, you know you might find yourself in the pages of the letter to the Corinthians or the letter to the Philippians. You might find yourself there, if you're being honest. But we're not honest. The thing that is most painful 
is to see Jesus humiliated and exposed on the cross. We can't handle it. We cannot handle it. When we look at Jesus on the cross, we can't. The Orthodox like to have their story about St. Vladimir, who goes to all the different lands and sees all the worship among the Catholics and the Muslims and the Orthodox, that I didn't know if I was on heaven or on earth. Well, if you read Matthew 27, you know exactly where you are. You're on earth. And whether it's in the 10th century or the 21st century or the 1st century, it doesn't look that different. Those who are at the bottom of the ladder are crushed by everyone higher on the ladder. That's what happens every time. It happened in the first and the ninth and the 21st century, and it's going to happen in the 29th century and the 31st century. It's going to be the same thing because that's what human beings do. They cannot bear to see this one humiliated. They can't. Even in chapter 25 of Matthew, when it says you're supposed to take care of these people, we can't. We can't do it when we stop at the exit and we see someone asking for money. We can't give them money. And we know if we make eye contact, they're going to look at us and we're going to feel ashamed. So we don't look at them because God forbid they look back at us. Because when they look back at us, that is the judgment of the Lord looking back at you. Just as in this story, they looked upon an innocent man, trumped up for politics, exposed and humiliated in order to humiliate all of his tribe. I was so upset in the past couple of days, Father, about this notification I received about church leaders being involved in political rallies. I cannot stand it. I have seen what's happened since Reagan in the last 30, 40 years of what happened to Christians. Christians became tools. The liberal Christians became tools of the Democrats and the conservative Christians became tools of the Republicans. They're tools. How are they tools? Because they go and they endorse their message. They go and they offer Jesus wine while he's on the cross. Yes. So we don't have to look at him. So we don't have to see him suffer or so that we see something really cool come that we weren't expecting to have happen. And this is what is really the tragedy of looking for your church somewhere in the Bible because you won't see. Look at what happened. The Republican Party puts on a rally around their message and they invite religious leaders to come. The religious leader who's doing the correct thing responds and says, I don't endorse that statement. Have a good day. Or they say, we've made our statement. You can find it here. I'll send you an email and you can see what we've always believed, but I'm not coming to your rally. We cannot become tools of politics. We cannot be tools of institution if we want to remain potentially slaves of this gospel. Because listen, like you were saying, Father, the verse says you will serve the earth from which you were taken. When you translate that as till, you're going to till the earth from which you were taken. 
you're going to break and do violence to the earth from which you were taken? You are going to take fruit from the land from which you came? This makes no sense. You serve it. Unless you're the child of Cain, then it makes perfect sense. Unless you're the child of Cain and you do violence by creating a foundation and then building a city on top of it. Because how do you get the city? You got to get bricks. How do you get bricks? Pharaoh knew how to get bricks. Mud and straw. That's how you make bricks. That's how you build it. You take the mud, the earth, and you mix it with straw. The same mud, when mixed with the breath of God, creates human beings, created Adam. To till the ground is the opposite of serving it. Because when you till the ground, you make it serve you. And in this passage from Matthew today, we're going to see they want to use Jesus in his humiliation to get a good show, to have a good story they can tell when they go around the campfire that night about the cool thing they saw. They want to feel like they were in the heavens because they saw this really cool thing. Not to mention there was a guy who was tortured and killed so that it could happen, but whatever. You know, we're happy baiting the bear if we get to see a good fight. Human beings love to see a good cockfight because, you know, chickens, you know, killing each other is entertainment for human beings. This is what they want to see here in the gospel. And this is what you want to see when you go and participate in these political rallies. You think that's a leap in logic? Think about it. You go to it so you can fight the good fight for your government, so you can fight against the other side. It's baloney. The guest list is not yours. When you come to a tea, the Lord invites the guests, not you. These guys are just like King James. God is saying in Genesis, Abad, you have to go and serve the ground from which you were taken. You have to serve your mother. I'm saying your mother in a very purposeful way. You are not the reference. You were taken from the ground. You were taken. It's not your story. It's the story of the heavens and the earth of which you are a part. How are they like King James? They hear what they want to hear when Jesus is preaching Psalm 22. And what they want to hear, once again, is Jesus coming down from the cross to ascend the chariot. And some of them who were standing there when they heard it began saying, this man is calling for Elijah. Now, we've talked about this before. He, in verse 46, said, Eli, Eli. And of course, in Greek, the name Elijah is Elian, Elian Phoni. He called for Elijah. But you can see how the names sound the same. Even in English, if you pronounce it Eli, Eli, and then it's Elijah, you can see the connection. But they didn't hear what Jesus said because they don't know Psalm 22 because they don't study scripture. They don't recite it. It's not in them. So they don't recognize the reference. Instead, what they hear is what they want to hear. Like someone who's interested in Holy Russia thinking about the victory 
of Neo-Byzantium over the poor Ukrainians because they're praying for Holy Mother Russia. They're praying for the victory of whatever it is they think they're supporting here in verse 47. And so they're cheating on God and abusing the teaching of Elijah as a story of their militaristic victory, which is the wine that Jesus refused to drink earlier in the passage. And now in 2022, I have to listen to scholars of literature explain to me that postmodernism is exactly how we're supposed to hear this text? No way. I don't care what your experience leads you to hear. It's not what Jesus said. And Matthew is actually playing on it in the story. So it's not like you not being able to be part of the story because there's no such thing as objectivity and everybody views it through the lens of their experience. It's not like the scriptural writer himself didn't understand that this was a problem. He's actually making fun of them for hearing what they want to hear. And I'm making fun of King James and the people who worked for him for writing what they wanted to see in the text, which was farming in North America and increased trade for the crown. This is what we're trying to say. You can't hear what you want to hear. You can't find what you are looking for. You have to hear what Matthew is saying. And he's demonstrating it within the story itself. It's very powerful, Rich. I keep getting confused when I read this because he's speaking in Aramaic, but the people who are around, maybe they don't understand Aramaic. Maybe that's what we're supposed to understand from this. But they still know who Elijah is, so they know something. I'm wondering how they do misunderstand what he's saying. Either they know Aramaic or they don't know Aramaic. And, you know, in this part of the world at this time, it was perfectly common for people to know Aramaic. It doesn't say these are soldiers, so they're not necessarily Romans or immigrants from somewhere else in the Mediterranean. They're, you know, from, they're probably from around there, so they probably know some Aramaic. So how did they misunderstand this? It does influence one to think that they are willfully misunderstanding, that they are hearing what they want to hear, because it is absurd, but it also follows the beautiful irony of what Jesus says that, you know, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then you've got a bunch of idiots who are still trying to misunderstand him. You know, any teacher knows that they have all this knowledge in their mind that they're trying to let people hear, but because of people's or children's foolishness and being caught up on their own thing, they have no interest in hearing or they can't hear. They simply can't hear it. You try to give them some knowledge. They literally can't do it because they twist the words or they twist what you're saying or they say, who do you think you are or whatever happens, but they can't hear. So these people, these crowds who are just people who are just standing around, got nothing better to do, but hope for a good show at least. Immediately, one of them ran and taking a sponge, he filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave him a drink. You pointed this out earlier, Rich, when we were chatting. They want to keep him alive just in case Elijah shows up so that he'll come down from the cross and ascend the chariot. They're still holding out hope that Jesus will come down from the cross and something glamorous and exciting will happen. 
They're still looking for orthodoxy in the pages of the New Testament. They can't stand to see the ugliness. They can't stand to just say, he's just going to die. They can't stand to say, he's suffering. He's saying this out of his suffering. He's saying this out of his weakness. He's saying this out of his pain. The guy still won't give up scripture even when he's in pain, tortured, and dying. I mean, this is every Navy SEAL's dream, is that when they go under torture by the enemy, that they're going to stay honorable and loyal to the message and to the mission. And here we have Jesus doing precisely that. Even in his last breath, he is still speaking scripture. He can't help himself. But that's not good enough for these people. They want to see a good show. Keep him alive a little bit longer. Because if he dies, I mean, Elijah's not going to come. That would be super awesome if he came. Who knows? There could be like angels. There could be like a heavenly host. You know, maybe they'll have weapons or maybe they'll be singing or maybe both. Or like there could be some, could be a flaming chariot. I mean, how awesome would that be? I mean, this is the ridiculousness of this. Let's see if Elijah shows up. Why? Why? Why do you care? Why do you want Elijah to come? Why do you want Elijah to show up? What? What's going to happen then? An innocent man is still dying on the cross and you care about the fireworks show. Literally, they just want the show. When so-called Christians want to involve themselves in politics rather than know their scripture, I feel sad. I honestly feel sad because they end up the same as these priests who betrayed Judas. After Judas betrayed Jesus, asked what should he do next, they betrayed him. They let him go. They didn't care. They were okay with giving him money so he could give up an innocent life. But when he came back in agony because of the innocent life that he betrayed, they had nothing to say to him. They were just worried about accounting. Human beings can't stand to see this pain, can't stand to see the suffering. That's why we wall off our ghettos. That's why we put big highways around the bad neighborhood. That's why we don't let panhandlers on the street. That's why we do all these cruel things. That's why we don't have enough homeless shelters to house everybody. That's why the awkward person at work gets made fun of. That's why the sensitive kid at school gets picked on. We can't stand to see it. To see the kid who gets really worked up at school over little things because they just feel things very strongly that people love picking on them because they can't stand to see the pain. They can't stand to see the pain that these kids go through when little things happen to them rather than try to comfort them. This is not vinegar that's given him to drink so that he his thirst is quenched. It's to keep him around for a bit to see the show. The word hekal in Hebrew means both palace and temple. I want that to sink in for everybody. The residence of Julius Caesar was built not just as a palace, but as a temple, because that is the ancient paradigm. You, as a human being, come from a line of human beings who worship government. The reason you have this nonsense called the moral majority is because finally God has saved us by making us irrelevant so we can deal only with Scripture and not with power. And you're pouting, and you want to go back to dealing with state power. It's beyond sad that Christians are clamoring for relevance. It's beyond, beyond 
haram that Christians are clamoring for relevance. You are mourning and lamenting the fact that you are no longer at the center of power. When the Lord crucified his son in the Gospel of Matthew to destroy human power. It's just ridiculous. Who cares what Caesar is doing? The Gospel of Mark begins with a voice crying in the wilderness not in the temple, not from an oracle in Athens, not from a courthouse, not from any institution, from the wilderness. That is where the path of the Lord is, and it's made straight by the enunciation of his teaching, his words. That is the business that we are supposed to be attending to. Till I come, attend to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching and to teaching, not to rallies. It's just unbelievable. Nothing changes under the sun, Dr. Benton. Nothing changes under the sun. We heard it in our first year as students And it remains an incontrovertible universal fact of Scripture. Nothing changes under the sun. You want to go to a rally in D.C. so you can stand in front of a mausoleum with Abraham Lincoln sitting in the chair of Moses in a pagan temple with the words not of Scripture but of the Gettysburg Address wrapped around it? This is where you want to represent the church the makers of war richard human words the makers of war do you think lincoln's going to get up from his chair he has eyes but he can't see he has ears but he can't hear he has lips but he can't speak we seat him on the seat of judgment in washington dc not on the floor of a theater where he was assassinated we have martin luther king bigger than life carved in stone in dc not laid out with an assassin's bullet, not humiliated by the very government that now hopes to lionize him. They want to use him. Let's put up a statue of Martin Luther King. Maybe we can get black people to support us now. This is how it works. This is how politics work. They want to use people. They want to use people. This is what the chief priests did this is what Pilate did this is what the crowds did they want to use Jesus they want to use his words to get something cool in the end so they have a nice story to go home with in the Old Testament when men try to give birth they can only give birth in stone and when you claim that A stone building can give birth. It gives birth to a bomb. Don't you understand, friends? Don't you get it? Human beings cannot bara, and human beings are forbidden. They may not bana.
There is only one who may create, who is seated in the heavens. We are not allowed to build or create. But the rest of them said, Let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. This is beautiful. This is vindication. Because they can't use him anymore. They can persecute him. They can abuse him. But when his father allows him to die, he gives him leave to go. There's nothing more they can do. And as I say often, Richard, you know I've said this many times, you only have one opportunity to kill Jesus. So you better make it count. Now, you will try to co-opt Jesus You will try to use Jesus the way that they use these other characters you were describing. Nobody wants to talk about the spilled blood of MLK except to exploit it when they're talking about it in front of his very impressive Hellenistic Zeus-like statue. That's the only time they'll talk about his suffering when they're in front of an impressive statue of him. But the freedom comes when you are free from the line of Cain, which pretends that it can beget life in stone. Because only the womb of flesh can be merciful because it begets life the way God intended, as flesh, and flesh passes away. This is the profound mercy of this moment, that Christ can die because now he's in the hands of his father. Now he is in the womb of the Adama. It's very powerful. What can man do to him now? This is why being faithful to the end and preaching to the end is no small matter. What would he have gained if he had come down from the cross? A couple more days, a couple more years? What is it worth to throw it all away and give up this freedom of being the slave to his father, being the slave faithfully to the end as he was commanded in Genesis? to the ground from which he was taken as a Ben-Adam. They all wanted to see him saved. They all wanted him to live another day so he could perform some more tricks. But as he said, the freedom he had was to die, leaving only his words behind, but his words not coming from himself, but from his father. And now you guys can deal with those words. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.